Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 56 of Life and Lessons. Today, you're going to hear a conversation between me and Andrew Tyndall. You might know Andrew as the guy who managed to last on the BBC's Young Apprentice for three times longer than I did, but off screen, Andrew has a really interesting story. Having studied for a medical degree at a prestigious university, Andrew changed directions not once, but twice. First by changing his degree halfway through, and then by starting a career in the alcohol industry. Today, Andrew is a brand activation manager at Bacardi, and it's his job to help you find an affinity with the alcohol brands you interact with. This conversation is interesting for so many reasons. In the next hour, you're going to learn about the alcohol industry and how it really works, why we make the choices we do when presented with a bar full of drinks, the real benefits of going to university, some of which have absolutely nothing to do with formal education, what working in care homes and hospices with those at the end of their lives can teach us about ours, and so much more. I'm sure you'll be able to tell as you listen to this, but I had so much fun recording this conversation. It's quick, it's funny, but most importantly, I think it's really interesting, and I think that you're going to take a lot away from it. But just before then, if you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. There are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way this year, and I can't wait for you to hear them. But in the meantime, here it is, episode number 56 of Life and Lessons with Andrew Tindall. All right, so I think the last time we were together was four or five years ago. I forget the exact date. All I remember is it was a house party at yours. All of the Young Apprentice lot were there. Uh, I was incredibly drunk. Lucy made a cake and uh, my friend Lewis turned up and it was a good night. Mm. I think we went out in Camden afterwards, but then I I think it just kind of disintegrated when we got there because it was like a Tuesday and nowhere was open. Um, But that was four or five years ago. That was the last time I've seen you other than the 10 minutes we've just spoken off camera today um and the only time i've seen you other than that was in young apprentice either in the boardroom or on task with enormous cameras in our face with all of our words being recorded and yet despite the fact that we've never actually had a conversation like this i feel like i know you i feel like i know you quite well do you think that's anything to do with the very weird shared experience that we both had when we were either 16 or 17 uh, where we were on national tv in suits mm. well um first of all i can't remember going to camden after that party so that's probably testament to what was going what that party was um and second i actually don't know i think one it's because we met each other so young and then social media allows you to have a part of someone's life so we followed each other on through social media um so we've obviously got to know each other through that but then yeah also that was like um you were forced to be it. You were forced to show your real self to everyone in that process because it was so um, so intense and daunting, and um, you know, and you, and you had the 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 intense in front of camera moment, and then I think we actually got to know each other more just when you could get home and the cameras were turned off, and then you could actually um, just relax, and you had to relax super hard because the in front in front of camera moments were just so unpleasant to be honest looking back um so take me back to that moment because i think that this is this is important context as it's essentially the only thing that we share in common for mm. sure it's 2012 probably like april may time um you're just about to fill in the online form on the Fremantle website to sign up to start the audition process of young apprentice what are you doing in life at that point are you at school and also where was your head at what made you click that button Mm. I think I was at probably high school. I think we were at high school. Um, it was summer. I was bored. I was walking around the house. Um, and then I saw Lord Sugar tweet because Twitter was a thing back then. Um, and saying it was the last day to submit applications for the Young Apprentice. I was I was kind of into like business and you know hustling. Um, back then and I 
just applied because I thought it would be a, a fun little thing to do. And talk me through the process. So obviously this, uh, I've been through it. It's, yeah. it's the one thing I've that, heard you talk about it on a podcast, actually. Do you agree that it's the one thing that everybody asks about? They're like, well, what's the process that they ever ask? What's Lord Sugar like? Which I yeah. don't really know what the answer is to that. You just say, yeah, it's okay. Um, Horrible question. <laughs> people, Drunk people in a club will come up to me and ask me what Lord Sugar's like. Or ask you like six or seven times in a row. Were you really on there? Were, were you? Re-? I'm like, well, yeah. I'm not forgetting. Well, not that I bring it up. Just to be clear, I don't walk into clubs. <laughs> I <be> do. Like- <laughs> Hi, Andrew, young apprentice. You go and do club PAs, don't you? Where you turn yeah, up yeah, yeah. and say, "I'm sweating Probably like a pig the- in the butchers." Brilliant. <laughs> Probably in these days, if we did it now, we would become. We, we would do the club PA kind of thing. They get serious followers now. Not that I haven't actually watched the last two series, but. Like yeah, the, the, the internet wasn't a thing get, for sure. It was just starting. Like there would have been memes on memes of us if yeah, we did yeah. it now. Back then, internet wasn't really a thing. Luckily, um, but yeah, uh, no. Um, what what do people ask me? Um, and what the process was like? I always get the how's Lord how how is Lord Sugar? I always tell them the story of one when he found me, his fly was down, um, <laughs> and two. Um, which kind of is kind of just a great symbolism of the whole thing, just being a bit fast, <laughs> isn't it? Um, and then to um, he he was once ribbing on us in in the um, in the boardroom, and like to the point where everyone cried. Um, and I remember he called us afterwards when we got back to the house and was like, "Oh, guys, it's you know, it's just for the cameras. It's okay." Did he really? Yeah, yeah, wow. which is really sweet, and you know. Which just is like he's just human, like everyone else, obviously. Um, and yeah, the process of getting on is very difficult. That is possibly the hard. That's the that's possibly where my massive ego comes from these days. <laughs> where that was that was so damn difficult. Um, you've talked about in a previous podcast this whole going through a hotel, almost like a game show of um, each level you pass, you get to a new stage, and each one gets progressively harder and. Um, there's people who have flown from around the country to get sent home after 10 seconds. Um, that was very difficult. That was possibly more difficult than the show. What do you remember about that day? Where did you, did you do yours in Manchester? The man in Birmingham. Birmingham. Um, what do I remember about that day? Um, I remember I was taking the piss quite a lot where you'd come out of a room and you'd be waiting in a waiting room and people would be shitting themselves and they're like oh what's it like in there what's it like in there and I'd make something up <laughs> you can see why I got on the show um, I'd you know oh god no they, they ask you this and this um, and I enjoy watching them squirm um, and then also you got to the end the end the end level and then they shove a camera in your face and then you kind of realise that whole end level the whole levels before have been kind of like getting you into this apprentice fighting spirit where you're just chatting complete shit. They put a camera in your face um, and then, you know, you let rip because you've just had um, three hours of complete bollocks, um, you know, bullying yourself up. You let rip on this camera and of course that's the video they choose to release who the candidates are and that's the only video if you Google me now you can find online and it's me being a 15 year old twat. Hopefully we can replace it with a video of this. Yeah. Of um, yeah. <laughs> so that first day is out of the way. I, my memory on it's patchy, right? But I know that people find this interesting. So you go home and I believe you're told that if you make it through to the next stage of the process, you'll get a phone call or you'll get an email or mm. something. The next one is that, is everyone in London then? I think we all get filtered through to the Fremantle offices at that point, don't we? Where we build IKEA flat pack. Yeah, you build stuff. IKEA flat pack. Yeah, yeah. So that was genuinely that was one of the weirdest days of my life. So um, some of the questions I remember was um, this this is very apt right now actually. So one of the questions we were asked as a team. So you get put into a team as if you're actually on the Apprentice, and you're asked certain questions, asked to complete certain tasks, and you're being filmed and monitored all the while. And this is so that you can show what you'll be like on camera, I guess. And one of the questions we were asked is, there is a, a pandemic that's just broken out in the UK. What would you do to control it or something? And despite the fact that the task was to talk about what you would do in a pandemic, there was somebody who was adamant on arguing that it's, if it's only in one country, it's an epidemic. And the producers are like, you're, you're missing the point. Like, we're not asking you to, uh, to talk about this. So you do all of that. You build IKEA flat pack furniture. And then you're asked... 
uh, who is responsible for the failure of not being able to build a set of drawers because inevitably nobody can do it very well. Mm. And we had a guy in our group who I won't name because he'll probably bloody find this. And it was the most bizarre thing because he was the the loud, like peroxide blonde hair Essex guy in a three piece suit. Well, was his hair or his personality peroxide? His hair was his, okay. his hair was quite something. That's the only thing <laughs> okay. I remember about him. And. As you do, back in the day, like you say, when Twitter was a thing, we followed each other afterwards. Mm. And he didn't get on the show, obviously. Uh, and we did. And he then... Obviously, was, that, was that a subtle flex? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> we were on TV, don't you know? Um, <laughs> so months and months later, when we have finished filming, I went back on Twitter. And obviously there are the the photos that leak of people on there. 2012 Blackberries taking pictures of people on task and stuff. Mm. And this guy must have spotted me. And my mentions were just full of him going absolutely mental, tweeting at me and Lord Sugar. And I'm like, I don't understand why this guy's got so much beef. So I clicked into his bio and he had literally changed his bio to like Young Apprentice 2012 First Reserve. Oh, I actually remember, I, I saw these tweets and I remember talking to you about this at the time. So bizarre. So yeah, Apprentice came and went you know what i've actually got a question and i am absolutely clutching if i'm expecting you to remember this nearly nine years later but i'm going to ask it anyway just to hurt my own feelings what was it like the the day i got fired and everyone goes back to the house and they're like yeah do you remember it yeah what the moment oh oh sean you oh you shouldn't worry about this kind of shit. <laughs> are you sitting up at night in bed 10 years later thinking i am Oh, what do... Oh, everyone worries about this, don't they? Everyone worries about what people talk about when you leave the room. Oh, the reason Sean, I, find I, didn't have so... you, I didn't have you down as this kind of guy. <laughs> um, the reason I find it interesting, just for context, is because you, as a candidate on the show, you see everything up to the point of you being fired and you see everything after it in as much as from the next week onwards, you see all of that. But that bit in the middle, I'm like, oh, I wonder what happened. Um, oh, God, it was too early on. No one knew each other anyway. That's true. Um, I can't remember. I, I honestly can't remember. I don't really think. I mean, this is the most thought I've put into Young Apprentice um, since, you know, since probably college. Um, no, I, I can't remember. No one cheered. I don't think anyone cheered. Sean, good. that's my, my you feelings. You were the are friendly restored. ones, mate. I was. Me and Max, we were too good for that show. We, we were, were too, too kind. pure for that show. <laughs> Your suits were too large. That yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were weighing you down. I remember we were on what bridge is it from St Paul's? You know the one you walk across. Millennium. That's it. Um, I remember we were on that bridge, and Max was very wholesomely giving me suit advice of what button to do up and how to do it. And I'm Bless like, this him. is he's lovely. Bless him. I love Max. So. On reflection of Young Apprentice, I know that it's a long time ago, but I think that being exposed to 3.4 million people on TV and all of the shit that comes with it on social media, mm. literally when we were children, probably shaped the way we perceive things like the opinions of others because it was like a, a one rep max, to use a gym analogy, of being able gym to... Gym analogies are lost on me. To be fair, I haven't been to the gym in months, so I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but what what I mean is it was like the, the most pressure we could possibly have been under from a social point of view at that age. So I think that it taught me a lot about, I don't know, the perception of success, for example, in as much as the public at large and people that we knew at the time considered us to be wildly successful because we had been on television on a game mm. show, essentially. And it's just it's broken in that sense about the benefits of blocking out what random strangers think about us because I think about a year ago actually I was um I sat in the bath and I was on Twitter and I thought I'd just read all of the old tweets because one of the series was back you on. You sad bastards. It was crazy though. <laughs> like some of the tweets I'm like oh my god I'm so glad I didn't search Twitter when I was 16 because yeah. I don't know what I would have done. Um, And also I think it also taught me about the places where we can take ourselves to if we actually want to in as much as I think everybody who got on the show, regardless of what they're doing now, if it's business related or not, we all at the age of 16 set our minds to doing something that tens of thousands of other people were unable to do. Mm. And, you know, the process, OK, it's not like SAS who dares wins or something mad where you need to physically go through a lot. But the process when you're literally a child is quite a lot. So it taught me that, um, yeah, we can do kind of whatever we want if we put our minds to it. What did the process of Young Apprentice teach you? Interesting. So I um I work for Bacardi, which um, I presume we'll chat about at some point. But um at Christmas, a lot of our profit, in fact, of the year, a lot of our profit comes from 
the off-trade and grocery. So Sainsbury's, Tesco. So the right thing for us to do a lot of the time is actually just make sure our product's on the shelf. Um, so over Christmas, we go into Sainsbury's and Asda's and Morrison's and we literally stack shelves. No matter who you are, it's called Back to the Shelf. It's, a, it's about being on the front line of our business. Um, and I was doing that last year in Huddersfield. I was home to see my parents. Um, and I was stacking, I was stacking um, Bacardi onto the shelf. And someone walked past me as I was doing this and said, Oh, Apprentice went well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What did it teach me? I agree with you. Um, It was a very quick way of finding out who you were as a person. Because as I said, um, you wouldn't have come across anything like that until you were in your mid-twenties, personally. That kind of stress and work. And it kind of developed a certain work ethic. Um, Secondly, as you said, if I want to do something the extremes I'll push myself to are incredible. So over lockdown, um, I was trying to get a cocktail delivery service um, going with um, Deliveroo for Bacardi. I don't think I slept for two weeks. It kind of like, and and it shows you not to limit your imagination, I I think. And then, yes, um, I'm in this constant battle of trying to um, listen to um, listen to feedback and advice from others and, um, also block out feedback and advice from others. Um, I think a, the the young apprentice kind of brought that to my attention as something to watch out for and how to filter someone's feedback and trying to understand why they'll be saying it. And then also um, f- understanding who you respect and whose feedback you want to be taking on. And also not just being a sponge. Like everyone's always like, be a sponge. Like, well, no, there's, there's a lot of shit out there, so you shouldn't be a sponge. You, um, y- your most valuable asset is is definitely you and w- what what you are and what you're about. So I want to take it back to that night, that party that we just spoke about. Mm-hmm. Not because it was actually anything. around the corner. This is it, this is behind my old house. Oh, okay, so yeah. I um I read. I, th- I assumed you'd booked it because of <laughs> no, because of it was. That. I'll be honest. <laughs> I read Camden and I was thinking because the studio we're recording in right yeah. now is in Camden. I read that and I thought. Oh, it's going to be rough. It's going to be because my perception of Camden is like, you know. The... Oh, mine's tourists and weed. Well, exactly, which which aren't particularly nice things. But actually, this area is quite nice. Oh. So I'm impressed. So when we were just around the corner, uh, I don't want to talk about the party itself. But I want to talk about what you were doing at the time in life. Because mm, yeah, I think since the last time we met, I know few people who have changed so dramatically in career path. Mm. So four or five years ago, whenever it was, you were at UCL studying medicine. Mm-hmm. But that's not the route you eventually took. Mm. Because as you just said, you now work for Bacardi. So did you drop out of studying medicine? Did you get the degree and then just take another path? Talk to me about that decision to go from, um, dare I say, tongue-in-cheek, helping people to intoxicating people. Mm. I get that a lot, actually, The that exact line. So it's not original, Sean. It's not, not very original. <laughs> um, I was studying medicine. I... Um, um, I didn't graduate with a medical degree. I graduated in the end of the biomedical engineering degree. Um, I made the choice to switch. Well, actually, it was all by... It can't, the apprentice helped in this. I was on the path to becoming a doctor. So when you're 10, people are like, you're very smart. You're going to have to go change the world. You're going to have to be a doctor, aren't you? And literally, and people always ask me why I made this change. It's... Um, it's a combination of every cliche thing that you'd expect. So um, I was, from a young age, I was switched on. I loved my studies. You're going to be a doctor. Um, And then when I got to London and I started working in FMCG, drink FMCG um, and and alcohol, um, I honestly decided there's there's more to life than, um, than that. And what's important is genuinely finding what you're, what you're good at and what you enjoy doing. And I honestly have not worked a day um, since any any kind of side job. I used to work for um, um, Life Health Foods who make, um, oh God, what do they make? Um, that Aussie breakfast drink. Oh, I know the one. I can't think of the name of it. Yeah, I worked for them for you and I still can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's ridiculous. That's, that's um, my drink sponsorship. Up, no, not gone. drink up. No, um... I, I worked for a liquid breakfast drink. <laughs> I should really come up with a name. 
That's so that's so offensive to them. Carry on talking. I'll find it for you. Okay. I then went to work for Innocent Smoothie, which was a lesson in culture, like people walking around the office with no shoes on. Um, and I almost worked for Bacardi, actually, at, at uni. Um, but no, I just... It's, it's worked out very well for me um, because I now end up doing a job which I love and I'm very good at. Um, at the time, I just decided that there's more to life and it's just about being happy. Um, and I know a lot of a lot of very depressed doctors. It's called Up and Go. That's we go. what the drink is called. Thank you. You just rescued my I used potential to work for sponsorship deal. Um, but what, yeah, what I was saying is that... It, Medicine can make a lot of people very unhappy. I know a lot of depressed doctors. Unfortunately, that's v- that's a very common thing. Um, the working hours are very stressful. There's a lot of responsibility, and you've got to think about the gain, the gain for loss. And I'm not just talking about cash. I'm talking about what you give up to do that. Um, for me, that there's an imbalance there. Um, but yeah, I, it sounds cringe, but my real calling is is working in in booze, in drink FMCG. And then what I've discovered recently, helped by lockdown, is that I actually love marketing. Um, so much so that I'm I'm less wedded to this whole al- the alcohol side of things. I actually just love the process of proper marketing. So other than when you were 10. Yeah. And we don't really make our own decisions when we're that young. That was such a washy answer, by the way. I, I, no, can't, I, I actually that can't was, tell that, you why, that was why interesting. I left There was actually a lot in that. So I'm going to okay. pick up on a couple of bits, right? Other than when you were 10, like you say, because we don't really know what we want to be when we're 10, so we will take whatever direction we're given. But mm. for as long as you can remember being, not even an adult, but just somebody who makes your own decisions, yeah. did you ever want to be a doctor? Or was it that you wanted to please those around you into doing what they thought you should do? No, I have I have an inherent need to be the best, unfortunately. So, um, the and it, which is another reason why I left, because I wasn't going to be the best doctor. Um but I could, I can be the best marketer. That's kind of, well, fucking helps so anyway. Um, no, it was less. I mean, the only people pleasing aspect may be my mother, um, where I love teasing her about it now. Where um, you know, um, I've I love telling her that I've you know I've left med school to, to sell rum to people. And when that actually happened, when you made that phone call or that awkward dinner conversation, when you said, "Look, mum, you're not going to have a doctor as a son. You're going to have." The Bacardi man. The Bacardi man. Well, I've 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 since worked for multiple people that aren't just Bacardi, but yeah, go on. <laughs> so what how what was that conversation like? Because I you know, I, I was never very academic, so fortunately mm. I've never had to have a conversation with my parents whereby I said I've stopped going to sixth form or where I said I'm not going to go to university. But as somebody who it sounds like you were very academic and mm. also you went to a good university to get a good degree. Yeah, UCL was one of the best in med school. It was an amazing place. So what was the conversation like when you said, Mum, it's not Well, happening. it was a fucking tough one, Sean. <laughs> um, I don't want to... Well, this pod... My mum hasn't signed up to be on this podcast, but I, I asked her. She she unfortunately couldn't make it. I'm not, <laughs> not going to air her dirty laundry. Um, it was a lot of, are you really sure you're going to be doing this? You've, I mean, honestly, um, I have complete respect for everyone who wants to work in medicine and, and, and go to med school. Although I, I am thinking about doing going back to my, high, my college and doing a speech on why I don't go to medicine. Um, because like fifty percent of people there, um, you know, fifty percent of the people at college I went to, you know, want to be doctors, which is some of them need talking out of it realistically. Um, but no, it was a lot of you've you've been doing this for ten years. You know, I used to volunteer in um, I used to volunteer in you know old people's homes on my, on the weekend. I did that for years. I used to volunteer at hospices with dying people. I would um go away for weeks to like med school training camps there's literally like med school training camps where you know all these eager potential doctors would go to a university at a weekend and like uh learn how to get the best results i actually remember one time someone fainted at one of these things and you know all these like um young aspiring doctors there was like a herd of them <laughs> running across the field <laughs> to this person that fainted. Uh, what a strange world. But yeah, she was like, you've put all this time in. Are you sure this is what you should be doing? You're going to regret it in 20 years time. Um, and th- there are occasions, you know, when um, people just want it to be, people just want to be comfortable, right? People just want to quell their self-doubt. So it's like at night when I've spent, um, you know, when it's been a tough day, you know, uh, launching some plan or something like that or something hasn't gone quite 
quite to plan. Um, and, you know, you get those, everyone gets these like self-doubts, like these niggling doubts of why am I doing this? Am I doing the right thing? Am I making the most of my time? Am I making the most of my resource? Um, and you know what would be really easy is if it was if I was a doctor, I could be like, hey, I'm saving lives. Um, and that will quell, quell all of that. And for me, that almost would seem like the easy option. Um, it's Life isn't that simple. Do you ever think, do you ever have fleeting moments where you wonder what life would be like right now? Because you would be an F1 yeah, I would, during COVID. Um, there's, a, there's a fork in the road where I got offered to go to Manchester Med School, which was five-year process. Um, and then UCL, which is a six-year process. If I chose Manchester, I'd have been three years in. I might as well have just finished it. I wouldn't have discovered the people and the, the industry I'd, I found in London. I would probably be a doctor right now. Um, and I won't be sat here on, on, a, on a Saturday with you with a hangover. Um, I don't... Uh, no, of course. I, I, love to, I, I, I love to assess each decision I make, but um, I would be a very unhappy, different person. And... I just want to, there might not be a profound answer here, but I'm going to test it anyway, right? You said that you volunteered in care homes and hospices a lot. Seeing people at the end of their life is something which gives us all perspective, I believe. It makes the trivial uh, decisions and worries that we have seem, well, exactly that trivial. Because whilst we have a hundred different things flying through our minds of what we might want to do in all of these small worries, people sat in a hospital bed or in a hospice have one wish and that's that they weren't there. Did that time in hospices and care homes, did it teach you anything about life? Deep question Back for a hangover. Hell, I thought this would be talking about um, uni marketing and booze. Um, I don't know. Did it teach you anything? Um, possibly seeing that well, I, I as as we've talked about already, it's I'm constantly trying to make the most of my time, and I've decided maybe it was through that, but I've decided that the best thing you can be doing, and a, a lot of people as well are very stuck in what they want to do. Like a, a lot of my friends, um, you know, who just finish their masters or just finish uni or are a bit stuck in their job. It's like, what is my next step? I always ask them what they do on a Tuesday and when you get home from work. So what do you do on a Tuesday when you get home from work? Oh, I, I like to cook or I watch a documentary in this. Well, just go do that. Just go do what makes you happy. You know, if, if uh, I, I'm, I think there's different ways of looking at life. There's distinct buckets. I'm very in the bucket of when I look back on life, if I've enjoyed myself and I've allowed others to enjoy themselves, um, I think that's that's possibly what that that those kind of those kind of very difficult moments taught me. I really like that that Tuesday thing. I've genuinely never heard. That no, yeah, if similar. you whatever you do on a Tuesday, I I get home and I cook. I cook nonstop and I make cocktails and I I I chat crap with my flatmates and that's what I do for a job. <laughs> Amazing. So you're back at university now. You had a degree. Sorry, started a, a degree. I have a degree. In biomedical engineering. So you started a degree, then yeah. changed that degree, then secured a degree, but then did something in life, which is, I think it's fair to say, entirely unrelated to that degree, mm-hmm. which means in the first instance, perhaps university didn't offer you any value. Mm. But you're quite a paradox now in as much as you've gone back to university to study uh, for a, a marketing master's at King's Business School. Is that International right? International Marketing master at Kings. Yes, you've done your research. I have. I've been on your LinkedIn this morning. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about your views on the value of university. I know that you know mine, but I'd be interested to get mm. yours because truthfully, and no pun intended, you're far more qualified to have an opinion on it because you've been through it twice. I know. I, I, I often see you posting at how shit uni is, but you've never been. So how do you fucking know? Well, I've been to student houses once or twice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what? Doing doing NOS and WKDs isn't the uni experience, Sean. But I, I, so the, the reason I, my only qualm with university is that And by the way, I think that you fall outside of this categorization in both instances. If you need a degree to have a particular job or career, i.e. a doctor, I believe that there's absolutely value in it. Yeah. And also if a vocational process. Yeah. And also if you're going to university to pursue something that you find deeply interesting, i.e. marketing for you. Yeah. Absolutely value in it. The issue I have with university probably stems from the school I went to where they will push the highest percentage of a cohort 
into university as possible because that looks positive in their prospectus, right? And I know lots of people who I went to school with who did the university thing, spent three or four years getting a degree, spent all of the money, uh, wasted that time that they can't get back. And now not only do they not use that degree, but they actually have a degree in something that they find either not interesting or just painfully boring, right? So my issue isn't with university per se, it's with the the shepherding of people into the system. But mm-hmm. as somebody who's been through that system once already and is back inside of it, what can you tell me about university that I'm not seeing? See, I actually disagree. I think the third point has value to it. Um, because I didn't, and I've discovered this myself, because I didn't go on to use my vocational degree, but I would not change anything. I think um, there's a distinct difference between, now, This you're an exception to this, because multiple things, but you... Especially in dating, you know, when you meet someone and what I look for someone when I'm dating someone is uh, emotional intelligence. That's the only thing I'm interested in, really. Do you know yourself and how well do you know other people Um, and how well can you express that? There's a distinct line I can draw between people who have been to university and people who haven't been to university. It's been forced to live with people you don't like. It's been forced to change your views on things. It's leaving your hometown. It's... um, understanding that you can't just go out and get pissed every night. You have to actually um, give up something to achieve something. It's um, learning something new, meeting new people, meeting people you disagree with and understanding if actually do you agree with them. All that is unfortunately wrapped around this process of go and study um, English literature at um, Bradford or wherever. Does Bradford have a university? I wouldn't know. I don't know. Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham definitely has a university. All of the bees. So I think it all has value. And I am pro leave your hometown, go to university, go live with people who are twats and keep you up at night and you hate them for it and decide that's not the person you want to be. Um, and go find what you enjoy doing. Christ. I And then, yeah. Um, Join a sports club at university because then you meet people. I, I hated sports. I'd never played sports in my life. I forced myself to row because, again, it was I had to get up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday. And, but basically, maybe the top line is stuff you don't, doing stuff you don't want to do makes you a better person. Like, force yourself to do things you don't want to do. Um, but yeah, jo- join a sports club and um, and also work on the side because I actually found the working on the side was actually what made me what what found my career. I decided I want to work in drink kind of stuff. But yeah, um, I agree that, that, that with the three the, the three um, kind of buckets of university. I think all have ho- horrendous value. And now I have gone back to university. Well, in lockdown, um, I'm a massive Mark Ritson fan. Do you know who Mark Ritson? Is? I don't. Um, Sean, call yourself a marketer and you don't know who Mike Ritson is. You're Googling it now. Let let the microphone know he's Googling it and he's going to pretend not, to know who Mike Ritson is. I'm not even sure if I have internet, so this could, this could flop. <laughs> Mike Ritson is a very um, loud, um, outspoken marketing guru. Or Yeah, um, you've now Googled him. Marketing Week Mini MBA by Mike Ritson. Yeah, there I did go. that and I did the marketing... I, I did his... Um, kind of crash course in marketing over lockdown um, after I'd been working marketing for, well, what I'll get on to, I think everything's marketing in the end, but um, in, I'd I'd been working in a year and I'd been working in marketing, which a lot of people do. Again, there's another line. I like to draw lines clearly. Um, There's a line between people who work in marketing and, and are just doing it. And then people understand what they're doing. Um, and that, the, the lockdown process and deciding to go and study marketing was where I feel like I, I stepped over that line. I discovered um, this uh, mini online MBA, which is absolutely amazing by Mark Ritson, where he essentially goes through all the marketing modules of a, of a standard MBA. And it's the most useful thing I've ever done. It's... I my notes are printed out underneath my desk like it's a Bible. Um, I then kind of discovered that and my ultimate passion for what I think marketing is and I it, it literally excites me and it's what keeps me going. And then because of that, I've gone and decided to do a master's because I found it so interesting. Not because There's people there who are doing it for the master's on their certificate. Um, I don't think anyone hires because you've got a master's. Maybe some like these wanky consultancies. 
um, <laughs> might demand you have a master's. And maybe we edit that out because I might eventually go and work at one of these wanky <laughs> consultancies. It's staying in for sure. Um, it's staying in. But I, um, I think that said wanky consultancy firms would appreciate your honesty in as much as I think <laughs> that what makes somebody good at marketing is being willing to point at the obvious thing in the room. You look at... Um, what is that drinks brand? We're not good at remembering drinks brand names. The one who does the advertising where it's like, we had space on this billboard to buy a bottle. Probably uh, innocent. No. Oh, oh, oh. What kind of liquid is it? Like fruit juices. I don't know. Oh, this water? No. Either way. um, Yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, uh, anybody who's good at marketing will appreciate the fact that you're evidently somebody who has views and is able to articulate those views, whether or not they're popular, right? Because I think that the best marketing is that which is decisive and divisive in as much as nobody likes the uh, the the 30 second TV advert that is entirely unrememberable and highlights a price and shows you a product. It's all about telling a story. And I think that that's something you do well, whether or not you piss off the wanky consultancy firms in the process. Mm. Well, I guess. Um, I, yeah, well, I do think it's important for brands to take a stand on um well, yeah, actually, well, I hate people talking about millennials. It fucking annoys me. And if if anyone ever presents like a, well, we're, we're doing this for the millennials or whatever, it's it's bollocks because um, you know I know some six year olds that act the same as as twenty year olds. Like um, millennials aren't a, a group; they are a, an age, and you and you have disparity between that group. But um, millennials um, believe that. I think 80% of millennials want to buy a brand that sits on the right side of social issues and it's about having a voice. Um, I, I agree. Where were we? We were on university. Yeah, so I think the only other thing I want to ask about university, um, because I think that everything you've just said I actually agree with. There are mm. many points you made about... So go to university. Can I actually... Now we're on microphone. Can I? Can you drop... Can you stop what you're doing and go to university for three years? I can. I'll do that. So long as, so long as somebody sponsors me through it and I get to podcast it, we'll do that. Um, <laughs> so I agree with everything you said about the fact that... How do I word this? People who I know from my hometown say there is a distinct difference in how much of an adult somebody is not to generalize too much between mm. those who it sounds horrible but town. i can't yeah i completely agree so i think that for the <laughs> my issue with university is the the course itself and the value it's offering but actually maybe i've been blind to lots of the other points about the fact that it forces you to become an adult where others will stay as a child it forces you i'm to, not calling other people a child well no in the yeah. sense in the sense that think about a and I, I did very similar because I stayed living at home for a while, right? Think about what our lives are like as children. We live at home with our parents and we have food made for us and we have our washing done for us and all of these things that truthfully I didn't need to worry about for years after I turned 18. And it probably, in many ways, slowed down my development as an adult. Mm. I know that they don't seem like important things, but understanding the value of time and understanding the value of money and all of the things that you touched on they can't be taught in theory. They have to be taught in practice. And mm. university forces you to learn those things in practice. So I can see value there. Are there any reasons that you would tell somebody not to go to university? Under what circumstances would you sit down with somebody and say, look, I've been in your shoes. I think this isn't for you. Mm. Well, first, that would involve someone coming to me for advice. So they're clearly very lost. Um, but um, the only circumstance is when you're really just doing it for the degree. Your, uh, everything I said holds true, but at least go try and read into something that you enjoy. Like, imagine where I'd be if I went to university for the first time to study actually marketing. Like, if I had that three years knowledge up front and then I knew that, then I'd be, you know, I'd be too busy to be sat here talking to you, I presume, Sean, at that point. Um, I feel like I'd be three years ahead. I really do feel that, go on just understand something go on anything so if you again if you like cooking or something go do food science um I, does anyone really does anyone really want to go read geography like I, I, i've not met anyone i have one good friend actually who did it and I, I think they're now a geologist i always use that example whenever i'm bashing education i always talk about um like humanities and geography in school where you learn yeah. about things like longshore drift who has ever that's a very specific example that you only found in high school. I think that's a bit of a hyperbole to prove your point. 
But um, it's my favorite line. Everyone listening that's probably that heard line's me say that about seven times. <laughs> but you've got to, you've got to go and <sighs> at least just try and explore something you enjoy. So mm. yeah, if not, go do marketing because it's awesome. So speaking of marketing, speaking of things you enjoy, yeah, you've had a six-year career in the drinks and now alcohol industry, and you're now with Bacardi. Yeah. And according to my in-depth looking at your LinkedIn profile research, your job title is a brand activation manager. Was that off my grinder or my LinkedIn? You got that one? Both. Oh, okay. So um, what's your... What, what You throw me off now by asking that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> brand activation manager. What's one of those? Um... Every time you interact with a, every time you see a brand, that's it being activated. So I manage how you see a brand from the portfolio I look after in the real world. Give me an example of that in practice this year, mm. or maybe last year, because this year has been odd, hasn't it? No, um, I mean, it, um, you can always activate your brand for any channel. Um, I used to just do on trade, um, which would be in premise, in bars. An example of how you do that would be. Um, I work for this. I work for. I mean, I like. I like. I like saying we work for because if you're looking after brand, you do work for the brand because you're only working on it for a certain part of time and you pass it to someone else. So I work for um, a brand called Saint Germain, um, as well as well as many of amazing brands, um, which is like this floral elderflower French liqueur. Um, so how do I get someone? How 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 do I grow that brand? It's about getting them to understand the story, try the, try the liquid and interact with the brand. So I need to activate it in front of them. So um, I will fill a, um, a terrace in London with beautiful flowers. Um, I'll put on an amazing um, Saint-Germain menu. Um, and then you'll activate PR and digital and stuff all around it. So then when someone, so then you've got that kind of purchase funnel of, you know, someone might see it on PR and then you might get some kind of direct marketing that leads you to the terrace. And then you're on the terrace, you see the brand, you see the menu, you interact with the story, then you try, you try the brand. It tastes great. You have a second one. So from start to finish, I've just gone from a, uh, someone who didn't know the brand to someone who now will love and buy the brand. So that's kind of my job. If I didn't go to your terrace if i didn't mm. have that event yeah but i've walked into a bar and i don't know what i fancy and i haven't yeah. maybe looked at the menu and behind the bar there are many drinks yeah but something's going to lead me to pick one yeah what is at play there what is subliminally mm. encouraging me to select the psychology of drunk people sean is difficult um no so there's a few things one the first drink you'll order you'll probably stick on it for the rest of the evening um two so this is kind of why I like booze. So also what you're what you're picking out there is the difference between unaided and aided awareness. Um, how involved you are in the purchase. Um, a lot of the time you'll have a brand call. Um, how do I nudge you with those brand? How do I make sure I've got more back bar space? It's super important to be visible on that back bar and in the menu. But it's what, this is essentially why I think I like working in booze, which it's taken me six years to work out. Um, we all have this involvement in purchase um, from toothpaste to I don't give a shit. Um, well, it's, it's benefits of branding. So what are the benefits of branding of toothpaste? They are, um, it's recognizable. So I recognize it, whatever. It's a habit. I'll purchase toothpaste. Then you've got this um, in between of uh, trusting a brand and it, it, it's symbolizing quality. So... God, maybe like a Mac. I'll buy a Mac because I, I trust it. it. It symbolizes quality. And then you've got this, I love this brand. So like a car, I think you'd have to, you're really involved in the purchase of a car. So I love, um, again, I don't really care about cars. So I'm struggling with an example. <laughs> Audi is out. Yep. Um, I love Audi. So I'm going to, I'm going to purchase Audi because I love that brand and I'm really involved in this purchase and I spent a month understanding it. Alcohol over indexes on that compared to how much you're giving away for it. So for a, a nine-pound cocktail, it's super important for someone to have Grey Goose in that cocktail, which is crazy. I spend nine pounds on packing sandwiches, and I don't care. Like, But as soon as it comes to alcohol, people get really, really interested. Why do you think that is? It symbolizes... We've got a society where it symbolizes a lot about you. Um, it's important that... Yeah... It's all about, I mean, there's this, there's this amazing paper from like the 1960s, which I love throwing in my uni essays because 
throwing in a paper from the 1960s make it seem really smart. Um, where it's all about your possessions of actually what what who you are as a person. So I'm I'm sure I've seen your your Instagram stories around you you like shoes, don't you you buy expensive shoes. I only own two free pairs of trainers. Do you? Four, You're always buying four. shoes in my in my head. I I used to buy and sell them, but that's a losing game. It takes far more time to try and acquire them than the margin that there is in each pair, so I gave up on that quickly. Okay. So maybe the shoes you've I seen. I thought I had to buy a pair of shoes before I left today. I brought cash. <laughs> I assumed you only took cash. You can buy um, my shoes if you want. I'm not sure if you're into that. <laughs> you should have seen that on my kind of profile. <laughs> um, so why? Yeah, why? Um, well, yeah, our possessions make up who we are and what that says about us. And it's kind of to our point earlier where we were talking about brands. And this is why brands have to stand for something. I want to be seen with this brand because it stands for something. Bombay Sapphire is about being creative and um, it's premium. And I don't want a Gordon's at a bar because that isn't creative or premium. That's not me. Um, Saint Germain is um, this cool niche. Well, not niche. It's cool um, uh, liqueur that you have to know about to, uh, to, to understand and then it's about discovering a brand and showing it to your friends. I actually did this as part of a uni project where, you know, you get a consumer profile about someone's pains, gains and, and needs about alcohol. So I think it, and I, I sat down for like a day thinking about why someone purchased alcohol. Um, one, it's about status. Two, I think we've got this inherent need to discover new things and learn new things. Brands allow us to do that. Alcohol allows us to do that. Um, I I lost I didn't include this, but my good friend um, who I'm at Diageo and I was talking to her about this afterwards, and um, actually came up with one which I didn't think of. It's about rebelling. So if you think about the tequila ritual, um, people want to rebel um, and let loose and blow off steam, and that's why clubs are a thing. So yeah, I think it's about um, expressing yourself, um, rebelling. Um, discovering something new and then having some society, um, some social, um, you need to be in the social ladder somewhere of status. So it's uh, the, the gray goose moment when the sparklers come out, something I particularly don't like, but people do it. Um, and with champagne, that's why champagne's a thing. Um, and then, and then you can also show your friends that you know something, Oh, try this, um, try this Santa Teresa rum old fashioned, not just any old fashioned. Cause, I've discovered it and it's cool and it's craft and let me show you. And now oh, that's really great. And you've learned something. And this is a moment for us, um, which is the nuts of why people like alcohol. I think that's, that's really interesting. Okay. There is, um, there's a study, which I haven't read. I've had it paraphrased in the form of a book <laughs> yeah. about a, do you always quit? Do you always quote studies? You don't read Yes. <laughs> that is, that's, that's one of my top. Yeah, this hobbies. is the difference between university and not university. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the the punchline is essentially that when sommeliers is that, am I saying that sommeliers, right? Sommeliers, yeah, yeah. When they were tested with bottles of wine, I know what study you're talking about. So they were essentially given dollar store bottles of wine and asked to explain their quality, their notes, and so on. Um, but it was a blind taste test whereby the the bottles were either decanted and put into more expensive bottles or they had a brown paper bag around them. And these people who are trained for years in understanding the intricacies of the smells and tastes of these wines were saying incredible things about dollar store wine. But then more interestingly, and you'll understand where I'm going with this in a second, when a, it's one way around or the other, I forget, but when a white wine was put into a red wine bottle and given red wine, sorry, red colouring, yeah. so it looked like a red wine, these highly trained sommeliers were telling the researchers all of these notes that can be attributed typically to red wines. They were tasting the color. The concept is tasting the menu, right? Yeah. I understand the point of expensive alcohol brands when it comes to bottle service because evolutionary, it's, it's costly signaling, right? It's showing that you can acquire uh, things, food, because that to the other uh, sex shows that you are somebody of status, like you say. So when you have a sparkler on your grey goose, all the same sex, um, all the same. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Sean. So when when you see when you see the uh, the sparklers, that makes sense because people see what you're drinking. But when you're seven drinks in on a night out, 
I'm willing to bet that most people can't discern the difference between the taste of, say, Red Square and Great Goose. Because mm-hmm. if experts can't do it, someone who's absolutely twatted whilst listening to Pitbull in a club definitely can't. What club plays Pitbull still? Remind me, so I'm, I'm never going to go to that club. Uh, th- there was one in Corby which has since closed down, oh, perhaps because perhaps because they play Pitbull. <laughs> but my, my question here, I guess, is when you're seven drinks in and nobody's going to see the bottle from which your vodka has come from, people still go for the premium options. It's anonymized when it's in that glass, right? You can't see what bottle it came from. Mm. And yet the price difference might be two or three times mm-hmm. between the bottom and the top shelf stuff. Why do people still do it? So first of all, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend getting to the point where you can't um, recognize what's in your glass or being seven or eight drinks in a club. I I um I always back responsible drinking. Um, for for the points I mentioned before, alcohol can be fun and, and a connecting moment, not a, a negative one. Um, why do people do that? Well, one the study you're talking about. I forgot which book. I haven't my favorite book, which is the only book I've ever read twice. It's all about this, the, um, the science behind alcohol. And one, you partly write in some senses, um, 80% of that. So if you get, you have to, to be a master sommelier, you have to pass this test every year. Um, I don't think it's every year. You have to pass the test every few years. Um, one year, um, it was shown that someone was cheating. So they had to retest the whole group. Um, there was an 80% difference between those who passed the first time and those who passed the second time because... Unfortunately, a lot of this is random with wine. With wine, unfortunately, a lot of it is random. And you're right, if you put red dye in white wine, um, some people taste it like red. That's um, so- something completely different. That's because we drink with our eyes, um, which is in, uh, another completely different subject. But um, why do people still do it? Um, again, it's no, it's a status thing. Like, yeah, I mean, Alcohol isn't functional. When we get into the realms of functional alcohol, then that's where it's a negative experience, and that's not something anyone should be pushing for in society. It's about having a social experience that um, that we define ourselves with and we connect with people through. So that's why you'd still be ordering Grey Goose um, rather than Red Square. And then if a club's all if if you can order a Red Square in a club, I'd recommend you just book an Uber and go home. <laughs> Um, so I want to pick up on the the social aspects, or rather the social hierarchy aspects mm. of drinking and what alcohol brands say about us as people. And I think an interesting example of this, we were speaking just before we hit record, is AU Vodka, who have gone in the space of about five years from being founded to now being, at least in my experience, one of the most prominent brands around when it comes to people who put on their Instagram short stories and show that them... It just shows the circles you hang out in, but go on. (laughs) It shows them and seven of their friends have ordered a bottle of AU. And the reason... I know nothing about AU from a... um, Like, I don't know the inner workings of their business other than the fact that they're based in Swansea and that they use influencer marketing heavily. Mm -hmm. But what I find most interesting about their approach, and it speaks to this point that you make, that drinks tell others who we think we are as individuals is that for those who don't know au vodka use the biggest names in uk rap music to promote their drinks right they have people like heady one fredo charlie sloth who i'm told you don't know any of those people but um they have those people promote their drinks through social media appear in their videos and i think what i find most interesting about their approach to that is that Deep down, lots of people want to be the rapper. Deep down, lots of people want to be the the wealthy person who is applauded by society. And when we look at, say, Charlie Sloth, who makes a lot of their promotional videos, Charlie will always have AU vodka in shot, no matter what he's doing and where he is. Really? Is it that? It, it's it, intense. Really that hard? It's very, very intense. He must have shares. Um, I've I've heard he does, and I've heard he doesn't, so I'm not sure. Um, you should bring them on as a client. Should bring them on as a guest. I think that'd be really interesting as a I'd love story. to join if that happens. There's there's four seats in here. There are two co-founders. Uh, there's me, so you can join in. Um, the reason I find it so interesting is because deep down, lots of people, particularly in today's culture, want to be somebody like Charlie Sloth. Charlie Sloth with his Rolex Daytona, with his Lamborghini truck, with his very expensive clothes and his trips to Dubai. You see all of those things in his pictures. And truthfully, most people can't afford those things. But everybody can afford one of those things in his pictures, and that is the AU vodka. It's almost like they're positioning themselves as a doorway, a point of entry into that lifestyle. And it's for that reason, I think, that they've supposedly sold over one million bottles this year. 
uh, which is an enormous ramp up from where they were a few years ago. What do you think alcohol brands say about us? What What is in that decision when I decide to be loyal to Grey Goose, when I decide to be loyal to Belvedere? Mm. Well, being lo- brand loyalty doesn't exist. So um, I wouldn't say anyone's loyal to those brands, but it's about choosing those moments where you'd want to be seen with them. Um, AU Vodka is impressive. Um, you'd almost get it like this whole, it's like the, the D2C world of, um, they're doing something massively different. They're not actually doing that, that anything that different. They're, they're using influencers and social um, very cleverly. But when they scale, they'll have to put it on billboards. They'll have to start working with Sainsbury's. That's, um, yeah, but it's it very, a very impressive growth. And yeah, um, basically what you just said and what we've talked about, I think it's being these being associated with, you get these brand associations and when you associate yourself with your brand, you steal some of those brand associations. Um, and then AU Vodka is, it's exploded for sure. I mean, as we were saying before, this, this the mic's turned on. I'm in two minds because I, I follow them all on LinkedIn and this is all like their first job and they've not done it before and none of them have studied marketing or worked in booze. At some point, we're going to get like some chief exec from Diageo who jumps ship and goes to AU Vodka to scale it. Um, and I'm in two minds about this is a big old joke or shit, I should go and actually help them grow this properly. Um, and not properly, sorry. They are growing it properly. It's impressive. Um, but imagine what you could do if you had an industry expert in there, because they have some serious clout. I was, I was working in, I was working with Harvey Nichols recently, and I saw it on the shelf, and it just suddenly because I've only, I've only, as I said, I only follow them on LinkedIn and, and on Instagram to keep track, but um, it suddenly landed then that shit. No, this is serious. Um, but I will say one thing um, that there is a distinct category in spirits where um, gimmicks are a thing. Um, unicorn tears, vodka, um, uh, that vodka with um, unicorn tears, gin, I think. Sorry, that vodka with caviar in it, which I've forgotten. Um, AU vodka, which is wrapped in gold leaf. Is it similar to. I once heard a nightclub owner say that particularly in cities like London, Manchester, nightclubs almost go for a three-year period where they're cool and they have to capitalise as much as possible on that, that, that moment in time because unless they're building a 500-year brand, they know that their time is ticking. Is, is the alcohol industry similar to nightclubs in that sense where you see nightclubs in London who they don't change ownership but they change names and they change branding every few years to be that new club? No. Um, if you start believing in a product life cycle, then it becomes self-fulfilling, doesn't it? So, um, no. Um, and I actually think what they're doing is associating themselves with the right people. The easiest way to build a brand brand associations is find someone that referenced your brand and associate yourself with, with that. But it's fickle as shit. So Nike was associated with Tiger Woods. Then look what happened there. <laughs> so you can't put your faith in humans. Um, that they are they're using it to scale quickly, but I'm interested to see what they do next. So once you can't ride on, you know, once you can't, once your brand surpasses, it needs to become more famous than your um, brand ambassador, or you you've got their brand associations, or people don't know who that. Per- yeah, I don't know who this person is you're talking about. For example, Charlie Slough. Char- I don't. Know I hear what you're saying are. though. If a brand is associated only with the people who promote it, like High Smile, that thing that you put in your mouth that winds your teeth. Yeah, that people yeah, like, yeah. You live and die with the the popularity. Yeah, of and if the Charlie Slough becomes, I don't know. Uh, I I don't know who this guy is. Um, if Charlie Slough suddenly has a scandal then AU Vodka has a problem. I'm so glad at your choice of words there. I was panicking desperately that you were about to say something about Charlie Slough. I was thinking, oh, we're going to need to I, edit it. <laughs> again, I don't know who this guy is. Scan- scandal was the right word. Scandal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, again, associating yourself with brand ambassadors like that, you need to be very careful. And r- right now, I feel like it's very heavily done like that. Um, and also completely alienates someone that doesn't, like like myself, I I don't I don't resonate with this brand at all because I don't understand it. What they have done as well, it's it's a great example of innovation. So, um, an innovation which is consumer centric, not 
wanky brand innovation because it's something you needed to do and you had the budget and you had to spend it. Um, where, yeah, they've come out with a blue blue raspberry grape grape one, um, which is blue and purple flavored vodka, um, and that and you know someone might scoff at that who works in the alcohol industry like oh they've come out with a flavored colored vodka what trash, um, but no. That is completely brilliant. The kind of people who are drinking AU vodka, I mean, the even the choice of that grape flavoring is genius. And then also the they do these like gold cut glasses and cases and stuff. I I do find the brand very interesting. I've, but I've just shouted them this, on this podcast. So I, now <laughs> I think you've been very very complimentary to them. Uh, I need to do this quick fire because we supposedly have five minutes mm-hmm. left in the studio. But I want to ask you two things, and the first is a very quick question, which yeah. is that. You don't associate with AU for obvious reasons in as much as you're not in the right cohort of people in society to resonate with Fredo the rapper. Yeah. Barring brands that you work with, which alcohol brand do you associate with most? Interesting. My favorite podcast is Jim Stengel's CMO podcast. Give it a listen. It's a lot. Guys, it's a lot more. It's better than this. Sham. <laughs> it's a lot better than this sham. Um, and he always asks what brand made an early impression on you. Um and why, and you know what? I always listen on a run, and I always think to myself, what what, um, what would I answer? And I can never come up with an answer, and now I'm being asked on a fucking podcast, and now I can't think of it. So what would I, what brand do I like, or? What, what brand speaks to you? Like what, if, if you had to point at a brand and be like, yeah, actually, as a person, I feel like they represent who I am, and I use that I brand. I don't work with. That, that you don't work with. Oh, interesting. See, I have a lot in, of stock in, answers with brands I work with. I was going to say, if you want to give me a sponsorship deal, then you can talk about the ones you work with Yeah, well. I'm sure all 10 people listening to this would, would all love Sancho Man. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm sure there's more than 10. There's 11. Um, yeah, there's 11. Don't forget mum. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mum your mum might listen now. I can't, because I, I don't feel like I was very complimentary about my mum either. Um, it really is nine then. Yeah. <laughs> um... I mean, I, 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 I love this industry. You should see my room, my, my house. It's full. It's like a, it's like the world's best stock bar. If I had to associate myself with one brand that I don't work with, um, oh hell, you know what? I, I really love Everleaf, which is something that's relevant for yourself. Um, Everleaf is a non-alcoholic um, aperitif where the founder is, you know, a kind of microbiologist. Well, I don't think it's microbiologist. They're kind of like someone who studied nature and, um, and you know, all these flavors and runs his own bars and stuff. And he's genuinely recommend, um, found this need of people who want to have these social moments that um, you can connect with friends, but not necessarily want to... I mean, I find this, if, I got, if I've got a big day tomorrow, I don't want to drink, um, but I still want to carry on living my life. So what can I have in my glass? How can I limit the loss of change without removing alcohol, with, with, with removing alcohol from the situation? So he's come up with this um, non-alcoholic aperitif with like natural botanicals and stuff. And I want, it tastes amazing. It's an amazing product. It's got an amazing story that's backed by, you know, someone who knows what they're doing. And it it does what it was set out to do. So I, I guess um, I'd say, um, yeah, Everleaf. You, you rescued me there. I thought you were about to stop talking and I had to go away from the microphone to grab my phone. I like that you extended that out a little bit <laughs> so there wasn't silence. You're a professional. Very last question then, because although I don't drink, I find everything you've just said genuinely fascinating because alcohol is just this thing that is put in our hands when we're 17, 18 years old. And it's something that most of us... Well, hopefully 18. 18, because yeah. responsible drinking. Mm. Um, and it's something that never leaves us and you know it it might be confirmation bias because i don't drink that i seem to see more and more people going sober not drinking but there's that whole aspect of things there's the rise of social media which means that we can now amplify the brands that we like and show who we are through them just very quickly before we finish where do you see the alcohol industry going in the future well firstly what you just described is um is alcohol is a punctuation to our lives which is a very positive thing. And it's such a shame that, um, you know, people people use it in a negative way. So uh, if it's, you know, I'm meeting a friend after a while, let's get a drink. Um, I've been fired, that's a shame. Let's go Let's go get a drink and talk about it. Um, I've just got married, let's pop the champagne. Let's, it's the punctuation to our lives. And I find uh, if you look at society, we've grown up around it and 
I'd almost argue that it's helped develop a society, especially if you look at the very early early life of alcohol. Like everything, sustainable and health is the macro mega trend um, with everything. Um, how do we how do we continue our lives and make as little impact as possible on the world? How do we look after ourselves better and consume less and be healthier? Um, and how do we connect with people in new ways and make new friends and new memories? Um, they're the macro trends of the world right now, and alcohol is no exception. Andrew, this has genuinely been very interesting. You've talked about that to all your guests. I've only, I've only had two so far and I have said that to all two of you but no genuinely I have learned a lot about university about alcohol and about life because essentially that's what's underpinned this conversation I think we haven't spoken about university as this self-contained thing nor alcohol we've spoken about how those things kind of affect who we are as people and I found that really interesting if people want to go and follow you anywhere um, other than Grinder, because of course it, it turns out that everybody already has you on that it sounds like oh. <laughs> you're the one who keeps bringing it up where, where else can people find you? I don't know just google me, Andrew Tindall and they'll find the Young Apprentice video which is a nice full circle because we started there and we finished there Andrew, thank you very much thanks Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.